Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. This is week 10 of a 10-week series through the Ten Commandments. So naturally, this is the last uh, message in this series. Uh, next week, we start a new series, an expositional series through the book of Philippians called Audacious Joy. And we will work our way through uh, that book, kind of verse by verse, section by section. Uh, we're going to a- answer questions from the text, uh, such as, um, how can we live with joy in such a crazy and uncertain world? Is it actually possible to live with a sense of consistent joy in the middle of all that we're going through? What does it mean to be kingdom citizens who live, uh, still live on this earth? Uh, what does it mean to be sort of citizens of, of, of two domains, as it were? In what sense can we say God is humble? Kind of an odd Maybe a curious thing to say about God. Can we say that He's humble? And if so, what do we mean by that? Um, is there really a difference between happiness and joy? You know, you hear a lot of Christians say things like this. Is that true? If, is there a distinction? Um, what does it mean to live a, a life worthy of the gospel? These are just a few of the questions that we will uh, seek to answer as we go through the book of Philippians. I can't wait. Um, Philippians actually has one of my favorite sections in all the Scripture. It's that middle part of chapter 3 which is so rich and and so encouraging. We'll get into that. Um, If you have been away from our gatherings for a while, um, maybe this is a good time to think about returning with school now uh, being in session for for most most people and uh, with us starting a new series. I hope that that's something you will consider, if it's wise for you, of course, uh, and your family. Anyway, that all begins next week. But this morning, uh, let's wrap up our series in the 10 words. And kind of as we've been doing every week, kind of building one section upon the other, I'm going to read uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. The word of the Lord reads this way. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then the passage for this morning, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. If you can think back on your high school English lit class, some of you may have to go back a little bit further than others. Uh, you may remember perhaps being assigned a uh, reading from the author George Orwell. In fact, my youngest daughter, who's going to be a freshman, is, is actually now reading George Orwell's Animal Farm. 
well, his most caustic, Orwell's most controversial book was the last one that he published. And it was a book by the name of 1984. Maybe some of you remember it. And in this dystopian novel, Orwell kind of presented this, this, this environment, this culture, this setting where the government, this tyrannical government, punished its citizens for having any thoughts that contradicted the mainstream ideology. So anything that was outside of what was promoted, either thought or action, was monitored and condemned. There's mass surveillance and complete control of expression. Maybe you remember, uh, you've heard the phrase, I'm sure, Big Brother was a phrase that Orwell made popular. And we, I guess we might say Orwell was a bit prophetic with all that's going on in our world right now. Any expression of thought or conviction that goes against the sort of imposed norm is sniffed out by media watchdogs and punished. You must repent of even your contrary thoughts. Now, maybe as I read the Tenth Commandment, you had flashbacks about reading that book, and maybe you thought, it's kind of your default mode, you thought, well, this is how God is. God is this sort of ultra-controlling, overbearing deity who wants to monitor our every thought and action, who wants to sort of overpower us and is waiting at every moment to punish us. This is actually the way that a lot of people uh, think about God, the way they envision God. Um, And, you know, up to this point, all nine of the commandments that we've looked at have been prohibitions against a demonstrable action. Uh, For example, you should worship no other God. that, That happened by way of sacrifice. Carving an image of God. Lying, stealing, murder, adultery. These are all things we do either against God or against our neighbor. But here in the final command, for the very first time, we see condemned a thought, not not even an action, something that that we don't do, something that goes on in our minds. Well, if we didn't consider the the, the context of the Ten Commandments, then we might, uh, again, be inclined to think, just what I need now, more rules, more rules. And now not just rules on how to behave or how to act, but rules on how to think. But when we consider the Ten Commandments further, and we've spent really this whole time doing that, trying to consider them in their context of redemptive history, we see that these commands were given to a specific people in the context of a specific covenant relationship. They weren't, as I pointed out before, rules that you were to keep in order to be loved by God, in order to gain God's approval. These were the terms by which God's already rescued people, already loved people, would relate to God, uh, one another, and their world. These commands are not God lording His authority over His people and saying, not only am I going to give you rules on what to do, but I'm also going to tell you how you can think. Now, of course, because He's God, He he can tell us what to think. And throughout the Scriptures, we do have uh, thoughts that are presented as dishonoring to God or or honoring to God. But God does this not as a way to, to stifle us, not as a way to keep us down. He gives us these commands as a way to help us enjoy life to the fullest. Again, these commandments, again, far from being God's attempt to to stifle His creation, they're actually given to us as a way of human flourishing. And in order for God's people to thrive relationally, spiritually, psychologically, they were not to covet anything that belonged to their neighbor. But what does it mean to covet? 
Uh, it's an interesting Hebrew word. It's the word chamath, which means uh, it describes an intense longing, an intense desire. And it's not always, these desires are not always wrong. It's not, it's not wrong to have a, an intense desire for something. In fact, the same Hebrew word, at least the same uh, root word, is used to describe God in certain places in the Psalms. Psalm 68, I think it's 16 or 18, says that God says, I have desired this mountain as my dwelling place. And this is actually the word hamad. It's, um, it's that word that's translated covet. So, so it's a word that means an intense desire. Um, but again, it, it's a desire that can be positive or it's a desire that can be negative. In fact, it's not even necessarily wrong to desire something we don't have. That's, that's not the issue. I mentioned uh, our son's wedding. Well, I guess it was three weeks ago, so our son and, and new daughter-in-law, they got married and, and outside of Chicago, and they didn't want to spend their first three days of their honeymoon driving in a car from Chicagoland to San Diego. And so Janine and I said, okay, look, we'll, we'll take your stuff. We'll drive it out for you. We'll pack everything we can into this, your Nissan Altima, and we'll, and we'll drive it out there so you guys can go you know, get on with your honeymoon. And so they did that, and so we drove. It's about a 28 or 30-hour trip, and so we drove over the span of about 38 hours when it took one eight-hour break, and we got there, and I had a week-long class to participate in, and Janine was doing other things, and, and then on Friday when their honeymoon was over, you know, we thought, well, you know, they're, honey, they're, they're honeymooners. They're not going to want to see us, mom and dad, and so we just kind of said, hey, we'll, we'll, you, know, you guys do your thing, and we leave tomorrow, so don't worry about us. They said, no, we, we want to see you. We want to be with you guys. We want to have dinner with you guys. And we'd love it if you would come in and, and watch us be part of our, as we open our presents, our wedding gifts, which was so sweet. I mean, people were so generous and, and they were so grateful. Well, there was more than one occasion when Emily, our daughter-in-law, and Quinn, they were opening a, a gift. And Janine kind of leaned over and said to me, like, I've been married 26 years. I, I don't have a pan that nice. I, I don't have a utensil that nice. Like, I, I want one of those. Now, that in itself is not wrong. Now, if she grabbed the pan out of Emily's hand and started tugging, and they had this tug of war, that would have been wrong. It's not wrong to desire things. It's not wrong to want things. Here's what this command is actually talking about, what it reveals. This is our first point. Our problem is not desire, but desire wrongly directed kind of quote or paraphrase C.S. Lewis, it's not that our desires are too strong. Our desires are too weak. We actually want the wrong things at the wrong time. We're captivated by things that are but a shadow of what could really be ours. See, to have desires is to be human. We're told in the early chapters of Genesis, we're created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And, of course, you know, that means a lot of different things, but it means that we are relational creatures being made in the image of our God who has forever existed in perfect Trinitarian harmony as Father, Son, and Spirit. So we, as those created in the image bearers of God, are relational beings. It means we're also emotional creatures, God Himself being a God who has emotions. Now, they're very different than our emotions. His emotions are perfect always. They are controlled they're always rightly directed, not so with our emotions. It also means that we are volitional creatures, which just means that we want things. 
To be an image bearer of God means that we want things. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with wanting things. But when we want to take things that belong to someone else, that's actually violating the Tenth Commandment. So what sorts of things? Well, we're told you shall not covet your neighbor's house. By the way, as Pastor Adam pointed out so skillfully last week, the Bible does, does not mean that, that a neighbor is just someone you live in, in next door to on the same cul-de-sac. Anybody you come in contact with, anybody that's in your circle is actually your neighbor. Have you ever been invited to someone's house and you know, they were very hospitable and you had a, a great time with them and then you left, you thought, like, I want that house. The, 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 I work harder than they do. That house should be my house. That's coveting. We're also told you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You know, maybe things are not going so well at your home and, and there's a lot of tension or there's a lot of stress and your wife seems stressed out and maybe she's worried about COVID-19 or maybe impatient with the kids or with you or maybe seems emotionally or physically distant. And you think, you know what, I want his wife. Like she always seems like she's in a great mood and She's so friendly, and she really takes good care of herself, and she has a way about her. That's, that's coveting. Now, of course, it goes the other way, too. Ladies, you see a man who's so involved with his kids, and he's patient, and when his wife talks, he, he actually listens. Instead of nodding and then saying later, what, what did you say? Were you talking? You see that man, you say, oh, he just seems so engaged with his family, and he just seems like he's really paying attention. He fixes things around the house instead of... Uh, leaving them broken forever, and you think, you know, I want her husband. I mean, he just seems so wonderful. That's coveting. This commandment goes on to forbid desiring your neighbor's servant, ox, or donkey. And when I wrote this sermon the week, I, I initially wrote, of course, no one around here would ever have a donkey or an ox, and I had to go back and delete that because I know there are a few people in our church who do, and that's cool. Um, but no one, I don't think, would ever look at another person's donkey and say, I, I have to have that. But what it is, uh, the, the writer goes on to say, verse 17b, or anything that is your neighbor's. Again, the problem is not wanting things. The problem is wanting your neighbor's things so badly that you want to take those things. Now, I say that because there is a brand of Christianity that promotes the idea that to be a good Christian, to, to be a really spiritual person, to be a heavenly-minded person means you can't ever want anything you don't have. So you say, you know, I'd, I'd like to get a new truck. That's coveting. You know, I'd like to get a, a new gun. That's coveting. That's called contextualization. Um, you say, well, I, I, I see these things and I want these things. Well, that's not what the issue is. Again, the issue, again, is not necessarily wanting things, and it's not even having desires. And I'm, and I'm not talking about, when I talk about this brand of Christianity, I'm not talking about Buddhism, which, you know, if you've studied this religion, you know says that the death of desire is really the fullest sort of freedom, so you can't ever desire. I'm not talking about the, the Mennonite version sort of, of, of the faith, which sort of rejects all modern-day conveniences, I'm talking about a hyper-spiritualized notion that, this, this, that to want anything we don't already have is wrong. 
This is a prohibition, again, against wanting what your neighbor has in such a way that you resent him and his life. You resent her and her life. You know, we've started doing catechisms, which I think is such a meaningful, wonderful expression, a way, way to actually sort of ingrain theological truths in our mind. We, there was one word in the confession, the catechism we read this morning in, in the first question, which was so critical to understanding this. It's the word resent. To covet is to resent your neighbor and what he has or what she has and actually desire that for your very own. We might say that the Eighth Command, which condemns stealing, and the Tenth Commandment condemns the desire to steal. So we have in our day, uh, just like in Jesus' day, we have a lot of religious people who say, well, I've never violated the the Ten Commandments. That's just not me. I just don't do that. In Jesus' day... Uh, you know, you had the religious leaders, the religious brass, and they would, they would go around and, and they would sort of parade themselves as sort of uber-righteous and they believed they hadn't violated the command. And so what Jesus does is He preaches the Sermon on the Mount, which is not necessarily about kingdom ethics, although that's part of it. it really what it is is Jesus saying, you thought you were righteous because you didn't commit adultery, but if you lusted, if you've lusted, you've actually sinned. You thought you were so righteous because you didn't kill anybody? But let me tell you, you haven't even come close. If you even hate your brother in your heart, it's the same thing. So what Jesus did is he offered the Sermon on the Mount as a way to tell people, look, you're not as righteous as you think. Well, sometimes people read the commandments. They say, oh, I've kept all of those. Or maybe they get through the first nine, and they say, well, I haven't done any of these things. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered. I haven't worshipped a false god. I haven't stolen anything. So they think they're, they're good, but then they get to the 10th commandment. That's like, okay, wait a second. It's not so easy to ignore. It's not so easy to claim obedience to the 10th commandment. I mean, who among us can say that we've never been jealous of a co-worker's promotion and wanted that promotion for ourselves? Who can say that They've never watched someone take a vacation to a dream destination and thought, I should be the one there. That should be me. Why do I have to go to Decatur for vacation and they go to Hawaii? If you live in Decatur, I'm sure it's wonderful. Um, (laughs) They say, well, that should be me. Like, why is that not me? Who among us uh, can say that they've never felt a twinge of spite when they saw the way an old classmate has gotten wealthy. You say, well, I, I thought this guy was destined for failure, and, look, and now he's extremely rich. That should be me. Who can say they've never had a moment where they actually dreaded their friend's success and wished instead that it was our story, not theirs? I'll make it even more personal to myself. What pastor can say he's never seen the meteoric numerical growth of a church and not thought and never thought, well, that, that, that should be me. I put in the work. I do the time. I do the study. Or seen the, a pastor's book sales and thought, well, that, that should be me. J.D. Greer, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, a wonderful pastor and leader, uh, said that when he started his church in Raleigh-Durham, it was, it was a church that was I don't know, you might call it a turnaround situation. It was a church filled with old practices and old rhythms and old philosophies. So he went into it and humbly and prayerfully uh, tried to guide this church in a very gospel-centered direction. And, and by God's grace, the church started growing numerically and 
People started coming, and people who had professed Christ for years to actually put their faith in Christ, they turned to Jesus in faith. And, and then he and the elders got together, and they had this vision. They, they, they prayed over for a revival, a church-planting revival, throughout the, the Research Triangle, but also throughout North Carolina, the United States, and actually the globe. They want to see God do a revival through new plants being, being, uh, for people being sent out and planting churches all over. And then he said the Holy Spirit brought to him one of the most convicting questions he said, I've ever had to ponder. He's praying and things are really you know, blowing up in the best way possible. And then he said the Holy Spirit brought this question to me. He said, what if I choose to do a revival through someone else and through another church, not yours? And J.D. Greer said, I mean, I was just broken over this. Because what I realized is, yes, I want a revival to take place, but I want a revival to take place through me and my ministry and my efforts. None of us are immune to the command not to covet. Martin Luther in his larger catechism writes, the last commandment then is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended against the preceding commandments. Such is nature that we all begrudge another's having as much as we have. Everyone acquires all he can and lets others look out for themselves. We know how to put up a fine front to conceal our rascality. I love that word. Here's the next point I want to make from this passage. The ten words are instructive. They guide us in right living, but they're also diagnostic. They expose our most imperceptible sins. So yes, praise God, the law, the Ten Commandments, which really is the sort of the summation, the embodiment of the law, it actually reveals to us the best way to live. And I've said this before in other, other contexts and perhaps other messages, if you want a life filled with sorrow, and failure, and broken relationships, and endless disappointment, and these huge highs, and incredible lows, then choose to ignore God's law and go your own way. God's law is, is meant to guide us in a way of faith-filled obedience. So it is, it is instructive, but it's also diagnostic. We've talked about this. It's like a mirror that we hold up to, and we, we see just how far we've fallen from God's standard of perfection, God's a holy requirements. And, and the Tenth Commandment, of course, is a beautiful uh, sort of encapsulation of that in that we see that we all have dreaded the success of someone else. We all have wanted what someone else has and even wanted to take it from them. The person who covets destroys herself. It was Theodore Roosevelt who said, comparison is the thief of joy. Now, sometimes C.S. Lewis is credited with saying that, and that's not what he said, but he said something very similar in Mere Christianity. He said that pride is essentially competitive. Uh, it gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. If we're always comparing what we have against someone else, we're always operating at a deficit. We're always operating at a loss, and we'll never be happy. Because the reality is there will always be someone with a bigger house. There will always be someone with a faster car. There will always be someone with a prettier wife, 
present company excluded, of course, there will always be someone who takes better vacations. There will always be someone who has more stuff, stuff that we feel like we deserve. And if we're always looking around comparing what we have to what other people have, we will always be operating at a loss. And how can we not compare in the world of Instagram? I mean, we, we, we look around, and, and of course, everybody puts their, their, their best everything on Instagram and Facebook. It seems impossible not to spend any time on social media and not think, well, I wish I had his life. I wish I had her life. And then maybe even in a more uh, weak moment, in a lower moment, not just I wish what I had what they had, but I wish they didn't have their life. That really bothers me. A friend of mine says that Instagram should be called Instacovet because it promotes this comparison and, and, and envy. And this sin of coveting, again, it will destroy us. It will create in us a sense of unrest and unhappiness that sabotages our relationships. And, and not only that, this is, you know, you, you've heard of gateway drugs, right? This is, we might say this is a gateway command in that if we covet, it will necessarily lead to all kinds of other sins. Because if, cov- if, if we allow coveting to reign in our hearts, then that will necessarily lead us to steal, won't it? And will lead us to lie. It, will lead, uh, it might even lead us, of course, this would be the extreme uh, manifestation, but it might even lead us, and has led some, to murder. I so badly want your life and don't want you to have your life that I'm going to take it from you. And of course, we know that what starts in the heart always moves to the hands. So the question, I think, is what is, the, what is the antidote to coveting? What is the answer to coveting? Now, most theologians and biblical scholars say, and, and let me just say before I tell you what they say, I don't make it a habit to disagree with most biblical scholars and theologians, but I'm going to do it this morning. Most theologians and biblical scholars say the antidote to coveting is to be content, contentment. So, and I certainly, I believe that's absolutely true as far as it goes. So most would say, okay, if you can learn to be content with what you have and accept what you have, then you won't covet what someone else, is, someone else has. And again, I believe that there's absolutely truth in that, but I don't think that really gets to the heart of it. Remember, coveting is not just wanting what other people have. It's not, it's, it's not just desiring something they have. It's wanting to have it instead of them. It's wanting to take it from them. As theologian Scott Key says, we cannot overstate the aspect of resentment when, it's to, when it comes to coveting. So I think the antidote to coveting, well, I think you know, contentment certainly plays in. I think the antidote is actually genuine love for neighbor. Because only when I truly love someone can I actually celebrate their success with them? Only when I really love someone can I delight when they have something that I don't have. I mean, think about it this way. When our kids succeed, what parent would ever think, I don't want them to have that, I want that instead? I mean, that's just not the way parents work. In fact, the opposite is really true. Your, your child 
you know, we've had, my family, we've had several broken bones, multiple broken collarbones and arms, whatever. And so as a parent, you say, no, I would rather go through the pain than them. I would rather suffer than them. What, what parent has ever said when a child has succeeded, no, I don't want that to happen. I want to be successful instead. We don't do that because we love our children. We're thrilled for them. We celebrate with them because there's something that about love that enables us, that drives us to desire what's best for the beloved. So when we really love someone, we want what's best for them. In fact, we could even say that's really the definition of love. So the people in my life that I love deeply and I'm thinking about all the time, I'm praying, praying for all the time, when they succeed, I don't think, I'm not thinking, well, I wish that were me instead. This is what happens when we love. So maybe the answer to the question or the antidote to coveting really is a combination of these two principles. And it's our third point this morning. To put off coveting, we must truly love our neighbor, which can only happen when we're satisfied in God's love for us. If you've read any John Piper over the years, the retired Baptist preacher from uh, Minneapolis. He says over and over and said throughout his ministry, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. But what is it that enables us to be satisfied in God's love? It is nothing other than our union with Christ. You know, a lot of the songs we sing in church talk about my debt being paid because of Jesus' uh, work on the cross. And praise God for those songs. And I'm so glad we sing those songs. I want us to continue to sing those songs. But there's actually more to the story than that. When Jesus, certainly, when Jesus died on the cross, beaten and bruised, inflicted with mark leaving blow upon blow, he satisfied God's full wrath so that we could be brought to God as blameless, righteous children. We're the ones who committed the sins, not Jesus. The sins of the Ten Commandments, the offenses against God, and yet Jesus, the sinless one, is punished in our place. The Apostle Peter says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then hearkening from Isaiah 53, by his wounds you have been healed. And I never, ever want to minimize the glory of the debt-satisfying death of Jesus. But as beautiful as that is, we're not just freed from our debt. So you think about our own lives. If we're if we have this huge debt and, and, and that debt is, is released or, or freed or expunged, uh, we still may be broke, right? We don't have the debt, but it doesn't mean we have any money. We still may be broke. Well, not only has our moral debt been paid by Jesus on the cross, that is all of our sins and offenses against a holy God we're, we're taken care of, but we have been united with Christ by faith and therefore granted all the riches that are in Christ Jesus. It's not that our debt, it's not simply that our debt has been wiped clean. Our bank account has been completely stocked. Our, bank, our banks have been filled 
with all the riches of Jesus. Here's a mind-blowing concept that when I preached through 1 Peter some 10 years ago, just really uh, crushed me for a moment in terms of this reality. When we turn in faith to Jesus Christ, God actually gives us everything that Jesus deserves. Acceptance, final approval, glory, praise, honor, the never-failing love of the Heavenly Father. So the good news of the gospel is not just that forgiveness is ours, although praise God for that, but also that the never-wavering love of God is ours. It's a love that we cannot lose. It's a love that will never fail. It's a love that surpasses all others. And it is a life-changing and life-giving love. Well, when we are loved in this way, which every person who is in Christ is, and when the Holy Spirit continues to pour God's love into our heart, which Romans 5 tells us that He continually does, then we are actually enabled to celebrate when someone else succeeds and we don't. We're actually empowered to rejoice when someone else gets a promotion that we thought we deserved, but we didn't get it. When someone else has a huge victory in their lives and we don't. When we are filled with the love of God in Christ, by virtue of our union with Christ, we are then enabled, as we depend on the Spirit, to celebrate rather than covet. We then love our neighbor and rejoice with them, even if they don't have the same feelings about us. Even if they don't celebrate with us. Even if they don't care about our plight or our progress, we can celebrate with them because we are satisfied with the love of God in Christ. Our joy then is anchored in God's love for us. As the psalmist says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now I'll close with this. I met with a group of pastors on Friday via Zoom uh, from all over the world. One guy was from Korea, another from Japan, Scotland, Russia, United States. And frankly, some of these men are really struggling. Two of them just had to close down their church plants because of COVID-19. and you know, they're, they're, That's what they've been doing for the last 15, 12 years. But they're church planters and now they have no church. And they're struggling. One guy at least admitted to question his very calling. Is this, maybe I'm supposed to be doing something else. Maybe, maybe this is not for me. And what I said to them as we wrapped up our time together, just wanted to be an encouragement to them. I said, look, as a pastor, you are loved and cherished by God because of Christ. Not because of your sermons, not because of your church plant, not because of your percentage of growth over last year or percentage of decline over last year. You are loved by God in Christ. By faith, you are God's Son, and He treasures you. He delights in you. doesn't mean, of course, we won't have difficult times, and it doesn't mean that there won't be sometimes devastating consequences of living in a fallen world with COVID-19 and other viruses. But what I said to them is the Spirit who lives in you and the very Christ with whom you are united will continue to strengthen your hearts as you depend on Him 
And that will actually be enough. That will be enough. Now, of course, this is not just good news for pastors. This is good news for anybody who is in Christ. If you're in Christ this morning, you are loved by God, and there is nothing better. There is no higher goal. There is nothing more rewarding, nothing more pleasant, nothing more comforting, nothing more to be desired. If you are loved by God, you have everything you need. Of course, again, it doesn't mean you won't have heartache and trials and ups and downs. We will, as people who are of the flesh, living in a sin-cursed world, we will have struggles. But if you are in Christ, you are loved by God and His love is satisfying. If you're not in Christ this morning, you're not loved by God. He loves you in the sense that He's provided for you, He's cared for you, but you are not in a covenant relationship with, with Him by which He would call you a son or daughter. You may have everything the world offers, and you may have, you may be thinking, nobody has a bigger house than me or a faster car than me or a prettier wife than I do. You may have all of those things, but if you don't have the love of God, you don't have anything of lasting value, nothing. Without the love of God, all the pleasures of the world, are, the Apostle Paul will say, they're dung. It's excrement, and there are other words you can use. You don't have anything if you don't have the love of God. But the beauty this morning is you can be received by God. You can be loved by God by turning from your sin, turning from your self-reliance, turning from your own pride and arrogance and trusting in the one who, because of God's love, was sent to live for you and to die for you. And if you're here this morning... I'll be up front with a mask on. I would love to talk with you if this describes you. If you're watching online from anywhere, you can email us at elders at capshaw.org and we will reach out to you promptly. You don't have to live apart from this Creator God. You can be reconciled to Him. And again, there's nothing more satisfying than being loved by the Creator of the universe, than being loved by the covenant-making King of all creation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, will you help us to believe it this morning? Father, I want to pray that person who's maybe watching only you know where. And maybe it's not Sunday morning. Maybe it's they're going to be watching this message uh, weeks from now. But whenever a person tunes in, I want to pray for that person either here or anywhere else who does not know you, Lord, who's not been reconciled to you through faith in the finished work of Jesus. Father, will you do a miraculous work? Will you remove the blinders? Will you bring them to a place of repentant faith? Will you work in such a way by your Spirit so that it would turn to you and trust in you, Lord? And we pray for those who are here this morning who are struggling, who are hurting, Father, I want to pray for your supernatural comfort in their lives. I want to pray for the man or woman who just feel, feels like I'm just barely hanging on. I want to pray that you would minister, Lord, to them by your Spirit. And for those who are in Christ, I want to pray that you would reassure us of your love. Our hearts are so prone to wonder. We are so inclined to, 
to find satisfaction, at least some kind of satisfaction in lesser loves, to pursue lesser loves. Help us to remember the all-satisfying, beautiful and all-sufficient love that would compel you, the eternal Father, to send your Son for us. Give us grace, we pray in Christ's name.